Hey, everybody, what's up? And welcome to Summarily, a podcast for busy lawyers. I am your host, Robert Scavone Jr. I hope you all had a really nice Thanksgiving. I know I did with my family. And I hope you're all getting ready for the December holidays. I can't believe it's December already, but we are going to kick off this month with a special interview with the dean of my alma mater, FIU Law, Dean Anthony Page. He began his deanship back in 2018. Prior to joining FIU as the dean, he was the vice dean of Indiana University School of Law and also a professor of law at that university. He earned his JD degree from Stanford Law School and after law school, he clerked at the district court level in the Central District of California, as well as on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. After his clerkships, he practiced at the London and Los Angeles offices of Sullivan and Cromwell. Dean Page, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining me. How are you doing today? I am doing well, and thank you very much for inviting me to appear. Oh, it's a pleasure. So where, where do we find you today? Well, I'm I'm in the office. We have just started exams for the fall semester. So I have um, hundreds of nervous students in the hallways. Oh, my God. Yes. Especially the, the one L's. I remember that first that first set of exams. It was it was indeed nerve wracking. Absolutely. Now, um, they have for the most part, they've had midterms and some other assessments along the way. But today is their very first high stakes final exam. So you I'm trying to remember back. I, I you know, the first time we were introduced, I we actually talked on the phone when you were part of the you know, when you were first interviewing for the job. Um, and then we met not too long after that. How long ago was that? That was almost four and a half years ago. Wow. wow. Almost. Okay. Yeah, and yes, I remember being very impressed that FIU had a FIU law had alumni who were willing to go out. And I assume you went out to all four of the uh, final final candidates. I was very impressed that FIU law had alumni that were sufficiently invested and concerned that they would approach, you know, well, at yeah. the time I was just a candidate. Yeah. What has been the biggest surprise for you? You know, looking back on it now, what are you doing now that you say like, wow, I didn't realize this would be so much a part of my job? Well, I came fairly well prepared, having served as vice dean at a, a similar public law school. I guess probably my biggest surprise was the level of I guess a pejorative term would be red tape, but let's say regulations and rules and compliance requirements mm -hmm. being here in Florida. I, I am surprised at how many trainings, for example, I have to go through and really often how many hoops there are to jump through, be it from the, FI, the FIU related regulations or, you know, Florida, Florida statutes. Mm hmm. And what's been your the biggest pleasure so far over the four and a half years? What have you been, you know, what what motivates you every day to come to come in and continue to be law dean? It is without question the personal relationships. And by that I mean the personal relationships, especially with students and yeah. faculty. We have an absolutely without question, bar none, 
fantastic group of students. They they are hardworking and deserving and resilient. They're, they're really the, the key reason that I, I am still cheerful and still happy and still really, uh, really enjoying this job. I also think that our faculty are tremendous. They punch well above their weight uh, compared to the faculty at, at, at other law schools. Yeah, I mean, that being such a small law school with, you know, small class sizes, it it really gave me the opportunity to to have those. They're not personal relationships, but close relationships with faculty members, the former dean, you know, administrators. You really do get to be on a first name basis with those folks. To me, that makes a world of difference. You know, I've I've had friends that have gone to larger law schools and, you know, they've told me that they in a lot of situations feel like they're treated like a number. You know, you're you're in law school for three years, in my case, a little longer than three years because I was in the evening program. And it's got to be a place where you're comfortable and you feel at home. And and that's certainly uh, how I felt at, at FIU. So, you know, I, I recently did a, an episode with Justice LaBarga and attorney Scott Richardson. And part of the discussion we had was legal education and, you know, how it has evolved and in some ways how it's really been stagnant over the past hundred years. And we discussed a little bit about the concept or the pedagogical approach of having more practical skills training as lawyers. And I I mentioned that back when I was, and I think it was my last year of law school or maybe the year year after I graduated, there was a lot of buzz in, in academia about potentially transitioning to a two plus one sort of curriculum where You'd have two years of in-course doctrinal training and then shifting to one year practical training where, you know, it's almost like a uh, a residency program uh, for medical professor, you know, professionals or, or doctors specifically. But that seemed to not really take hold, at least not that I have seen in, you know, looking at different curricula at different law schools. It seems like it's still your traditional three or three plus if you have got an evening program of doctrinal courses. Obviously, there's been a a big increase over the past decade or so in clinical courses. And I know that FIU is, at least in Florida, has been at the forefront with with clinical programs. How can the, the, uh, the law schools actually change their approach to get people more prepared to hit the ground running when they join a firm or a governmental organization? Well, first, I think you're absolutely right that there has been more focus on experiential learning. And in fact, it was sometime within the last 10 years that our regulator, the American Bar Association, introduced the requirement that everybody graduate with at least six credits of experiential learning, which it could be clinics, it could be internships, it could be simulation courses, but it was supposed to be something that was resembled the, uh, resembled the practice of law. And of course, we have the model of other countries. So for example, Canada, which is in many ways similar to the United States, you do an undergraduate degree, then you do three years of law school. They actually have this articling period, which is a year working under the instruction in a a law office or or, or government office or something like that. So there's certainly um, lots lots of different models out there. Now, I guess where I might push back a bit here is I think we're getting really close to that here at FIU. And what I mean by that is the overwhelming majority of our students 
do take some sort of internship. And by that, we're talking about where people will go and spend one or two days a week working at a law firm or working at a prosecutor's office or public defenders or or whichever. Now, nearly all of our students do that. And many of our students do that for more than one semester. Mm -hmm. And then when you add the work experience of two or sometimes three summers, you're really beginning to get a lot of exposure to different kinds of practice and what it actually means to be, you know, a real working lawyer. And the the example I always like to use is, you know, you can sit in in a first year crim law class and you'll learn all the elements of a crime and so forth. But from the very first day at the prosecutor's office or the public defender's office, you're going to learn what the practice of criminal law is really like. And it's very, very different. Mm-hmm. So that said, I think we could probably do we we could probably do more, but at least at FIU Law, I feel fairly comfortable that essentially our students do have exposure to that kind of thing. And we really want them to be able to, you know, add value right right from the first day. A more general, a, a larger approach. There have been schools that have tried to do, and in fact, FIU is one of them where we had a a whole semester where you would earn 15 credits working in, working for a firm or in in a legal office. We don't really, it's it's still, I believe, on the books and a student who wanted to do that still could. Students haven't really been interested in, in following that up. And that's also what I've heard with other schools that have adopted that sort of semester of work approach. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I wouldn't expect major changes in that area uh, over at least the you know next five or 10 years. Mm-hmm. So from your perspective, and, and you've, you've raised a fair point, and that was my experience at FIU as well. I mean, I did, I did a lot of internship work. So yeah, the, you know, the cumulative effect of that work can sometimes be two semesters, three semesters worth of, of experiential learning. But do you think that there are, um, when you say that you don't expect that any major changes in the next five years, I guess that's what what I really wanted to f- to flesh out is: Do you think there's a chance that the ABA would dictate to go to like a two plus one curriculum? And and the reason I ask that, Dean, is because it seems like law schools, some some law schools or many law schools, and employers are sort of at cross currents when it comes to this because employers are looking for people who can hit the ground running and start to bill hours um or you know in the case of a of the, of the public sector you know hit the ground running and be ready to try cases right away but do you think the ABA is looking at or will look at any major changes to how the curriculum is actually set up I think that that is unlikely for the foreseeable future. And uh, partly I say that as the the ABA, our regulator, is dealing with some other things at the moment. Mm -hmm. My guess is the biggest thing that the ABA is dealing with in terms of legal education is probably to do with online and remote education. Mm -hmm. And this has been ongoing for a while. Um, there's been an expansion. So when, you know, when you were in law school, I think you're probably capped at something like 10 remote credits. It's now up to 30. So a third of the law school program 
of legal education can be delivered remotely. And they've issued waivers such that there's probably about nine or 10 schools now that are running fully online or close to fully online programs. I think it's fair to say it's it's unclear yet how successful they are mm. in terms of in terms of outcomes. Uh, certainly, students seem to seem to like them, or at least students seem to report that they like taking at least some remote courses. But um, you might have seen uh, there was an article very recently that that attributed the um, decline in bar passage in a lot of states to students taking remote courses and that of course was you know done in a hurry because of covid and and so forth but you know here in florida there's a seven percent decline in bar passage Mm -hmm. is that because of remote instruction um i don't know the answer to that for sure but certainly a lot of people are suggesting that it is yeah well sample size is too small at this point and and the other thing too is there's a lag for that you know you're you're going to you won't know with any real degree of certainty. You you will have data on bar passage, but whether or not taking 30 credits remotely has an impact on one's ability to practice law. I mean, I don't even know that that's measurable uh, in any real way. And even if it were measurable, you're talking about, you know, you're going to measure that in five years for the people that are graduating now. So um, and you know, look, I may be a little old fashioned. I just think you need to have you need to be in the classroom. I mean, barring a covid type situation where you just can't be in the classroom. I, I don't think there's any substitute for being in the room with the professors, with the students. Um, you know, I've been on Zoom now for years as a practicing lawyer. And sure, it has its benefits for certain things. It, you know, it's suited for certain things, but for other things, there's just no, there's no substitute for being in the room. So um, uh, we're we're on the same page there. I yeah. I completely agree. There is something to some degree intangible, but there are clear benefits in person that you cannot get in in uh, in you know through Zoom or other remote methods. Now, that said, um, you mentioned as a practicing lawyer that there are some advantages. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seems very clear to me from my conversations with judges and so forth that, you know, even when we're we're fully back to normal, a lot of things will continue on Zoom. It's much more efficient, for example, if, you know, instead of going to the courthouse for your 10 minute motion, you just argue that on Zoom. And partly as a result of that, we actually introduced a, a course this semester designed to uh for for our law students basically in terms of you know how to deal with uh court proceedings mm-hmm. that are going to continue at least in part in zoom and this was taught by um judge rodriguez who you may know yes. who has you know he saw firsthand a lot of the mistakes and problems and issues that the practicing lawyers had yeah. and uh he helped develop this course to make sure that our our students won't have those same problems and will be much better at the way Zoom is different from, you know, standing up before a judge and and trying to make an argument. I guess the the other sort of challenge that the ABA has been facing for the last several years has been about entrance exams and mm-hmm. whether the LSAT or yep. an entrance exam is going to continue to be required. Yep. And it now looks as though um, they will vote to allow law schools not to use 
an entrance exam. Um, it looks as though they've delayed there. They'll delay that until the 2025 admission cycle. So we have several years to get ready for that. But um, I, I expect law schools will be given that freedom. Do you think that's uh, what will a, will a GRE be required? No, it, this would be dropping. So the requirement was an LSAT or another valid admissions test. And um, we accepted the GRE, as did roughly 100 law schools. There were some law schools accepting the GMAT, for example. But so this would be no, no admissions test is required. Now, law schools would still be required to follow sound admissions policies and still would be required to deliver outcomes at the back end. Right. But they would be the, given the freedom to experiment on how to bring in uh, bring in different students. And yeah, of course, that's... one of the most interesting aspects of that were that both the defenders of the LSAT and the people that wanted it removed both argued that this favored diversity, equity, and inclusion. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess I have mixed feelings about that. You know, I am a person who did terribly on the LSAT. Um, but did pretty well in law school, did very well in undergraduate. And, I, you know, had it not been for my GPA, I would not have been admitted. So on the one hand, I do understand the push to get rid of uh, a standardized test like the LSAT. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I do think that law schools need some sort of objective measure to figure out likely to be successful in law school. And I think one of the things that people miss here is that this is not purely a selection process in that you're trying to find people who score highly on the LSAT. I think it's important for the students as well, because if law schools are, are doing an objective measurement on, on an incoming student's assessment, and they're saying, yes, we're admitting you, I think what the law school is saying is that we're admitting you and we think you're going to be successful and we think you're going to pass the bar. So I think that as consumers, law, you know, people going into law school should want something like that in place, should want objective measures in place. Because frankly, I don't want to be admitted into a school that I'm not going to graduate from or into a profession where I'm not going to be able to pass the ultimate exam, you know, a bar exam or something like that and be able, you know, I don't want to waste three years and all that money just to find out that I'm not capable of doing this particular job. Are you willing to give us your thoughts on on getting rid of the LSAT? Sure. So I absolutely take your point that it is, you know, it is educational malpractice to admit a student that certainly if you don't think they have a reasonable chance of success. Yep. Uh, where I come out on the LSAT is there are definitely students for whom an LSAT is very helpful in that it lets us know that the potential is there. Yep. This might be a student who, you know, whose GPA is, is significantly lower, or perhaps their undergraduate program wasn't particularly rigorous. Correct. Or even, you know, their, their reference letters do not really tell us very much about the student. Right. Um, so for a student like that, the LSAT absolutely can be helpful. But then there is also the flip side. There's a student for whom we really don't need the LSAT. 
-hmm. So, um, you know, one example, for example, a foreign lawyer, maybe they've already taken the New York bar. Right. I don't need the LSAT to know that this is somebody who can succeed in the practice of law. Right. Right. And, you know, just to emphasize, you know, Florida makes it very, very difficult to uh, to to practice as a lawyer without having an American JD. Mm -hmm. So. um, So I, I, I think that having more flexibility makes sense. The other problem with the LSAT is it's become far too important. And that's because of rankings, which I think is something you might have wanted to discuss as well, given the rankings have been in the news recently. But there has been because the LSAT was a one of the metrics that was controllable by law schools. There was a lot of emphasis on it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the truth is, in my view, whether you got a a 175 or a 170 or a 165 or a 160 or even a 155, you're demonstrating that yeah. you have an excellent chance of passing the bar. Yeah. Yeah. You're still going to have to work hard, but you have an excellent chance. In yeah. fact, it probably goes down to 150. You still have an excellent chance. Mm-hmm. And drawing the distinctions between an out, you know, so our LSAT median is 160. Uh, because of rankings, yeah, we draw a distinction between a 161 and a 159. And the distinction in terms of actual likelihood of succeeding, it's just not there. Yeah. So anything that would de-emphasize the LSAT as this end-all, be-all metric, I think is desirable. Many of the schools went test optional. In California, they're going test blind, so they won't be able to look at uh, look at entrance exams. So it's definitely it's 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 a time of experimentation. I guess I'd also add another approach, which actually is is being pioneered by a couple of different groups, including the organization LSAC that runs the LSAT. And they're sort of running a program in undergrad where they're going to teach skills and so forth. And then at the end of that program, they'll be able to say you're, you know, you're suitable for law school or presumably for some that they aren't suitable for law school. Yeah, good good luck with those conversations, sitting down with someone who's gone through that and, you know, having to tell them, look, you know, you're really not cut out for this legal profession thing. I want to pause for a minute to thank our sponsor, Ascension Global Staffing and Executive Search. Do you want to find the right talent to elevate your firm to the next level? Are you searching for a position that will enhance your career? Of course you are. And you need a partner that will help you find the right match. Essential Global Staffing and Executive Search is that partner. Ascension is a national Hispanic woman-owned and operated executive search firm that works with law firms, corporations, and individuals. They bring together firms and talent across a variety of industries. Ascension's team of professionals understand the ever-shifting job market and utilize their intimate knowledge of firms, companies, and industries to connect employers and people. Ascension knows that a solid team is a firm's strongest asset and that people thrive when they are part of the right team. Whether you are looking to bring on new talent or trying to find the best fit for your career, Ascension can help. Firms and companies that partner with Ascension can receive a 10% discount on Ascension services 
by emailing info at ascensionsearch.com. That's info at A-S-C-E-N-S-I-O-N search.com. Team up with elite talent. Elevate with Ascension. I want to jump to the rankings. You mentioned the rankings. I did want to talk to you about that. Um, and surprisingly, the likes of Yale and Harvard have now decided that the rankings are really not worth it. So they're dropping out. They're saying they're not going to participate in the rankings. What do you see in terms of the future for U.S. news and world reports as far as the rankings go? Well, this is a this is in some ways a very exciting time. Mm-hmm. Because as you said, Yale and Harvard, and now there's probably about 11 or 12 schools yeah. Yeah. primarily concentrated at the top of the rankings that have said they won't participate. Mm-hmm. Now, in some ways, this may not matter because U.S. News has said it's going to go on ranking anyways, and it has most of the data, almost 90 percent of the data is publicly available in other ways. Right. So it doesn't need the schools to participate. I would expect we'll see some of the unranked schools at the bottom also not participating because I, I don't see how they're, you know, they're already unranked at the bottom. Right. It's unclear how US news could punish them. I, I think the situation is very fluid. I, I can tell you that. I and some other deans have been having a conversation about what we're doing. Certainly not. We're 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 staying well clear of any potential antitrust concerns, mm-hmm. but we're certainly having having some um, some conversations about the implications of these other schools other schools moves. I think if it means if this nudges U.S. news to start making some changes in its formula. I think that would be great. Yeah. So a couple of, you know, there's a couple of specific things, for example, that one can focus on with U.S. news. Like, why is it that FIU law would be ranked a better school if we let in more wealthy trust fund students, Mm -hmm. higher socioeconomic condition students? That would make us, according to U.S. news, a better law school because we would have a smaller percentage of students borrowing money and they would borrow less money. Mm -hmm. I just don't understand how the way in which a student pays for a law law school education, how that affects the quality of the education that they have. You know, it's like you buy a you buy a Tesla and you pay cash or you finance it. Mm-hmm. The Tesla is the same car regardless. And how does the way you paid for it affect its quality? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, at a very sort of small scale, the fact that the student librarian ratio, yeah. that's worth 1% <laughs> of the rankings. Yeah. The student faculty ratio is worth 2% of the yeah. rankings. Yeah. I'm not sure that that is a very appropriate weight for yeah. most students and their experience. And I say that um, I, I relied on librarians a lot. I think librarians are extraordinarily important, but I'm not sure that the ratio, you know, it's, it should be, should be two to one. Right. Yeah. No, there, um, I mean, there's, we, we could have an entire podcast about the rankings. I mean, you know, uh, expenditures per pupil, 
um you know so okay great how many light bulbs did the you know let's buy some more light bulbs so our expenditures you know so our ratio let's have a let's have a, a bonfire in the atrium right use it burning real money because that will make us a better <laughs> rant law school yeah. and meanwhile you know the bar exam is bar passage rate which obviously is something that we do extraordinarily well on that is a trivially small percentage yeah. and yet it seems to me that that is a very important outcome along with employment. I mean, I think employment is the most important outcome. That's the thing that I care about the most. I want to make sure that our students are getting the best possible opportunities out in the job market. And it sure helps if they pass the bar. Right. But, um, you know, those two outcome measures really don't get very much weight at all. Yeah. In, and then, uh, you know, the, other, the other thing that gets way too much weight is reputational score. Um, you know, for people that don't understand this, you know, it's it, reputational score is, is measured by a couple of thousand people across the country, law deans, you know, the admissions director at law school, the, the you know, the chief judge of the courts in the state, things like that. And there are so there's this group of people that get a survey every year and they rank every law school from one to five. And, you know, I've said this to friends before, you know, well, what is a law dean in Iowa or a judge in Wyoming know about FIU or, you know, pick your law school? You know, if they didn't go there or have somebody that went there, you know, or has a, a friend that's a faculty member there, they don't know anything about it. And yet they're deter, you know, they have to rank the law schools. And then that reputational score, which, by the way, is a weighted average and takes a lot to move, it takes years to move it even incrementally, that's 40% of your score. And it just it's just ridiculous. I mean, I think I do think you're right. A, a reassessment of the weights probably makes a lot of sense. I do think rankings, if they're done properly, can be helpful because I think that the ranking can give students almost like, a, you know, a consumer services sort of uh, approach where they can look at the schools and say, okay, this school is doing well. This is, this is where it's doing well. And I want to go there. And it also can, it also can give prospective employers a, a snapshot of what to expect from the students coming out of that school. But I think if that approach is going to work, it needs to focus on two things. Your inputs are essentially your LSAT and your GPA. So you're assessing the incoming student quality. And then your outputs are your bar passage and your employment figures. And that's assessing how successful your graduates are in passing the bar and getting a job. And that's where the real meat of the ranking should be. That's where the that's where the biggest weight should be. Well, it is interesting that you say that. Um, I was just reading a study that just came out last month, which tried to do that with inputs and just bar passage. So it didn't include employment, but just okay. bar passage. And so essentially it's doing what it calls a value added measure. Hmm. You have a certain group of students and what are the what are the outcomes? Now, um, I particularly like that as it, it ranked all 200 law schools. And on this value added metric, FIU law came number four out <laughs> of the 200 law schools. Um, <laughs> I've seen other ones where FIU, you know, similar, you know, FIU always comes in at the top 10 because you know, we do a good job with yeah. our students. Yeah. And I hasten to add, it's partly our students. It's like the uh, the work ethic that I talked about before. Part of passing the bar is working hard to pass the bar. 100%. And, you know, 
you, your faculty can't do that. Your your teachers can't do that. It's got to be the bar taker herself or himself that does that does that work. I, I am very sympathetic to an approach like that because then you're looking at you know what is the law school actually going to do for you? Right. Where what can you hope to get out of your yeah. three year program of legal or four year program of uh, program of legal education? And I mean, there's a, a a common refrain. I mean, it's a joke, but there's an element of truth to it. You know, about Yale, you know, Yale takes fantastic, wonderful students. And 300, three years later, they are still fantastic, wonderful students. Right. They might not have learned anything about civil procedure or how to file a motion or any of the business of being a lawyer, but they were fantastic and they're still fantastic. And they're going to pass the bar in, 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 you know, in high numbers and, and they're going to learn quickly when they're working and so forth. Yeah. I, I guess I'd add one other part that the way they present the rankings is inherently confusing, I think, in that it creates this ordinal rank. Yes. So it says, you know, this school is 96 and this school is 94 and this school is 80. And of course, at, at, at each end of the distribution, sure, there are maybe some pretty significant differences, but in the middle, sort of from about, you know, 30 to say 130, those those schools are very densely, densely yes. packed. Yeah, it's just like and any other the, bell curve. Exactly, like any other bell curve, but right. it makes the difference between 98 and 68, you know, that's 30 spots, right. but really they're very, very close in the yeah. distribution. Looking at the raw number, whether a school is 10, 20, 30, whatever it is, is not a very helpful guide on where you should end up going to law school. And Absolutely. unfortunately, too many people do that. You know, they, you know, I, I really want to go to school in Florida. You know, I'm from the Northeast and I want to go where it's sunny. So I'm going to pick, pick a school in Florida and they go and look and all right, well, whatever it is, UF is ranked number one in Florida. That's where I want to go. You know, and then they get there and they wind up realizing that they're in Gainesville. They're in a fairly small town. They don't have a lot of intern and externship possibilities. They don't have as many courts as you do, let's say, in a Miami-Dade County or a Broward County. And they have fewer opportunities and, you know, they wind up being unhappy or, or not successful. So picking up on your point there, one of the rankings that that I, I do rather like, it's a best value ranking. And that tries to look at the cost of a legal education sure. and then compares to the benefits in terms of employment and uh, uh, and bar passage. And so that um, the one for this year just came out. We're number 17. Uh, UF and FSU are both on the rankings as well. But one of the things that makes it challenging is they include cost of living. And we're wow. one of only four Very schools on that list that's in a big metropolitan area where, you know, frankly, the costs of living in, in Miami and South Florida are, are really pretty high. Yeah. But you do get something with that. As you've said, you get great professional opportunities yeah. Yeah. and you have the ability to do you know, uh, more interesting kinds of internships, for example, yeah. and there's more cultural opportunities and so forth. You know, often there is a reason why people want to live in in these these big cities. Sure. So before we wrap up, I did want to talk to you a little bit about affirmative action. As you, I'm sure, aware, and as many listeners are aware, there are two big affirmative action cases before the Supreme Court this year, uh, one involving Harvard University and one involving North Carolina. And 
I listened to the oral arguments in both cases, and it sounds to me like affirmative action is probably going to be going away in terms of higher education. You know, as many people know that right now, race cannot be a determining factor in somebody's uh, admission, but it can be a part of the calculus. Uh, that's the current state of the law, not to be too uh, general about it, but you know, this is not a podcast right now about affirmative action law. But what I want to ask you about is, have you and the faculty members and other law deans, have you had conversations about them, about what the future is going to look like in admissions without affirmative action? And, you know, what things do you think you're going to have to do from an admissions perspective, not only to comply with the law, but to also maintain diversity in your classes? Okay, so first... I agree with you and the views of almost every commentator. It seems highly likely that affirmative action will be struck down. Uh, for me, one of the interesting points is I'm really interested to see whether the majority opinion engages in originalism for this particular issue. And um, I suspect that it won't. I suspect we'll see some originalism references in the dissent and, or dissents and um I think that will be really interesting. In terms of how it will affect us, I have a very, very simple answer. It won't affect us. We already do not practice race-based affirmative action right. in Florida. We're not permitted to. We're one of the nine states, nine or 10 states that doesn't allow it at the moment. Right. Um, and you are right. We are majority minority. And we have been, I think, every every year of our existence. Um, we're also majority female. And now there is a now law schools across the country, there's a majority of female law students. So at least in terms of uh, gender, there, there, there really isn't, uh, I don't think there's a, any, any issue or concerns there. Although possibly, you know, looking out five or 10 years, when we look at uh, undergraduate enrollment, there may be concern, concerns about male enrollment, you know, in five or 10 years. I think what will have to happen is those law schools that aren't already doing this, in other words, law schools in states that have permitted affirmative action, are going to have to start focusing on some other things that will be permitted. So, for example, we focus on lower income. To us, you know, socioeconomic condition is a very relevant concern as we, as we look at whom to admit to law school. Lower income people face additional challenges and often don't have the same kind of opportunities. And it's as simple as my kids, well, you know, they were able to take them um, to prepare for the SAT or the ACT. That's an advantage compared to those who don't. Right. The analogy to the LSAT, you know, if you have a, a somebody tutoring you, you're probably going to score better on the LSAT yep. than if you've had to work the whole time. You know, similarly with GPA, if you're working your way through college, you don't have the same amount of time to devote to your studies as as if you have a a, a, a trust fund. Yep. We really we we do take that into account in terms of the kind of metrics that that students are able to to produce. We we recruit specifically at some undergraduate schools that are have high high amount of minority enrollment you know HBCUs for example one can recruit in that area and i expect to see more law schools 
specifically recruiting at majority minority serving institutions. Another thing one can do is target neighborhoods in particular. The residency in neighborhoods can be correlated with, uh, with race and ethnicity in ways that are, are constitutionally permissible. So, so I do so, think. So essentially, what you're saying is find ways to increase the applicant numbers from these places. And by definition, you will increase or maintain at least the number of minorities that you have at your particular institution without running afoul of any legal concerns. Right. Absolutely. Or here's something specifically we're doing at FIU Law. We have an we have an FIU Law Path program and it's targeted at traditionally underrepresented groups and it's designed to help people understand what it means to apply to law school and what is involved in getting into law school and then succeeding at law school. And so, for example, one part of the program includes instruction on the LSAT. But there is also mentoring and other ways of helping people be exposed to what law school and the legal profession will will really be like. And that's a program that really seems to be working. We're getting some of the graduates of that program, but they've gone off to something like 17 or 18 different law schools at this point. And uh, I'm sure there are other law schools doing similar programs. In fact, I was involved in setting one up at at Indiana University as well. And more programs like that are constitutionally constitutionally fine and and will help. Interesting. Do you have any idea in talking to folks uh, whether that's the approach that schools are going to take in states where affirmative action was permitted? I mean, I, I don't know. I think so. Uh, other other schools which have had experience with that in particular are in California, where initially there was a huge drop in minority participation. And then over the last, oh, it must be now about 17, 18 years since um, since the change in California, they have managed to um, really increase by they, I mean, the various universities and law schools and so forth have really managed to increase representation without taking into account um, race and ethnicity. So I, I believe other law schools will do this. And I, I don't think it's going to be quite as dire as some people predict. And the Supreme Court might still surprise us, but I doubt it. I, I Let me put it this way. I would be astonished if affirmative action is upheld when when those cases come down. Absolutely astonished. And maybe even, you know, if I look narrowly at the interests of FIU law, maybe it will even help us as we'll have a better chance at recruiting uh, people of color from, from out-of-state schools that used to be able to practice affirmative action and now are not able to. You know, now we can better compete right. with those schools since we we can't practice right. uh, race-based affirmative action. Very interesting point. Well, Dean Page, I want to thank you very much for joining me today. This has been an interesting conversation. We'll see what happens over the next five years or so. I hope you, I hope you plan on sticking around and continuing to do the good work that you're doing. But it sounds like, you know, with the changes at the ABA and the changes with the rankings um, and the changes with affirmative action, it sounds like, you know, things are going to be uh, in flux for the next few years with higher education. So 
uh, we'll obviously continue to track that. And obviously, once these two major opinions or major cases are decided, I plan on doing an episode um, about about them in particular and what the court holds. So, but again, I want to thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. And hey, thank I you so much. I uh, I really appreciate the invitation. My family complains that that I can talk about legal education for for hours and hours on end. And so I I always welcome the opportunity. So thank you so much. Of course. And I hope we can get together soon. Absolutely. Take care. Well, that's a wrap, everybody. Thank you very much for joining me and for listening. I hope you've subscribed to this episode and shared it with your friends and colleagues. I want to thank Dean Page again for joining me for an interesting discussion. I also want to thank my friend Chris Clark of Pendulum Productions for his work producing and editing this podcast. You can find him and his work at vimeo.com backslash Pendulum Productions LLC. Once again, folks, thanks for listening. We have some episodes coming up in the next week or two to catch up on case law from November. And I'm looking forward to 2023, where I've got a bunch of really interesting guests that I'm lining up. And obviously, we're going to be getting into U.S. Supreme Court opinions, most likely uh, in the early part of next year. So again, thank you for joining me. Please make sure you subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. And remember, folks, case law is one word.